want to invite you to remain standing as we pray. Uh, we come together every Sunday for a congregational prayer, standing as a way to be um, in solidarity with one another as a church, as we come before God together on, and intercede on behalf of our community, our, our church community, and our wider community, according to his word. Uh, this morning in particular, we want to pray for many of the young people and the students, um, school-aged children and teenagers who are in our church and in our wider community as school starts up in a different age. So would you join me as we pray uh, with that particular focus? God, we thank you for the precious gift of the children that you have given us, so many of us, and the grandchildren, the, the young ones who are in our very lives. And we want to pray this morning, Father God, for so many of the school-age children and the teenagers who are not only in our church community, but, but all around us in the wider community in the city of Hillsborough and our surrounding communities, especially as school has begun for so many in this past week or so. God, we pray first of all for their, for their education this year. What a challenging set of circumstances this last year plus has been educationally. And so, God, as so many schools, public schools and private schools and, and homeschooling families seek to establish within this current dynamic how to educate effectively, God, we pray that you would grant blessing, that you would grant relief even amid some of the pandemic that you have sovereignly uh, allowed to occur. Father God, would you grant the ability for teachers to, to be organized, for students and parents to be able to adapt and we pray that children would learn and young students would learn what they need to learn in school to thrive in this world. God, we also pray not only for their education, but for their relationships with one another. What a challenging time to be a 7-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, and so forth. God, we pray that, that you would help them connect in meaningful ways with one another and with friends. And God, while we thank you for the, the blessing of technology that allows us to communicate and interact in so many ways, even when we're not face-to-face, -face, we're grateful for those technological tools. But we also recognize you made us for face-to-face -face relationships. And so we pray for healthy and safe ways for students to connect with one another, with friends. And lastly, Father God, we pray not only for their education, for their relationships, but for their discipleship as you would put it in your word. We pray for their connection with you and with your church. God, I ask even right now for those that are uh, just to my left over here in our north wing of our building, teaching so many of our children, little ones all the way up through elementary school, teaching them the truths of your word, showing the kind of care and love as adults who love you and are committed to serving these children and their families I, as you love us. God, I pray for their success and for the success of our own ministry to children in this church. We pray for our Club 14 and Club 56 ministries that are taking place on Wednesday nights, bringing elementary school-aged children from midweek time to gather and run and play and have fun, especially while the weather is nice. And most importantly, to learn that there are things that you have told us in your word that impact them for the good. God bless Beth and the team of people that work with her for our Sunday school ministry. And we, we also pray for the refuge, our ministry to junior and senior high students. Father, I thank you for the 30-plus students who were out here this past Wednesday for a barbecue to kick things off for this new year. God, I pray for every one of those students and others involved in the refuge who were not able to be here this past week. Father God, would this truly be a refuge for our junior and senior high students, a place to come and be honest and real with a God who cares and adults who love them and are interested in their best to be led and guided according to your word, that this would be a place, Father God, where students experience you as the God who loves them 
and who can transform them. So Father God, we pray that you'd bring this about for every uh, man and woman who is involved in running our refuge ministry this fall. God, would you bless them? Would you give them great unity as a team, strong belief in what can be accomplished if we simply show up faithfully to serve with you in mind? And God, we pray for our continued search for an associate pastor for our staff team who will help oversee our student ministry as well. God, would you bring us to the right person, bring the right person to us. Father, we offer ourselves open-handed as a church on behalf of our children and our students and those in our community and pray that you would bless them with eternal life, with a connection with you and with the needs that they have. For, your good, for our good and for your glory, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated church family. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Matt. I'm one of the uh, elders here at the church. I also serve as our lead pastor. Uh, great to see so many of you here this morning. I want to just encourage you to continue to come. We're also grateful for those of you who cannot be here uh, joining us on the live stream. Welcome. Uh, we are very grateful for technology in this limited time period that still gives us a way to connect but how important it is for us to connect with one another. We're going to open up the Bible right now and read a part of it, uh, one of the Psalms, the Old Testament worship songs, known as the Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 73 this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, either paper or digital, whatever form it comes in, I encourage you to uh, open it or swipe it to Psalm 73. And let me ask you, have you ever had a day that was so bad that at some point you wished you would just wake up and discover that the whole thing was just a series of bad dreams. Anybody ever been there? Everyone probably has at least a time or two, right? Maybe for you it was just a particularly awful day at some point. Uh, for some people it's a whole season of life, um, something that doesn't go away quickly and we just wish we could wake up and have the nightmare go away. Um, maybe for some you feel like it's even the majority of your life. Of course, the challenge is we know that it isn't a dream, right? It's real life. We can't just wake up and see it all go away. So when you're in a place like that, how do you tend to handle it? What, if you could put your natural default response in a word, what would that word be? I actually want to just take a couple words right now. I'll start. I'll give you mine. My word would be plow. I'm a, I'm a plotter, right? I just gut through life. That's my default response. And so when things are awful, I just like put on the blinders and plow through the day and just hope it's going to be better tomorrow. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. That's just my default. What's your default? Give me a word. Hide. Hide. <laughs> Love the honesty. Can I just make it go away, please? Hide. One or two others. What is that? Plant a tree. Now that is effective. I've got a bare spot in the backyard, Tammy, that I need you to come, and on your bad day, you can plant a tree for me. <laughs> Seriously, though, yeah, what can I do that is going to be productive right now? One or two others. Karen? Kneel. Pray. There has to be a spiritual answer. It should have come from me. It didn't. It came from her. Pray. Great reaction. Endure. Yeah. What, like, when the day is just awful and you just wish you could wake up from a dream, what do you do? We're actually going to talk about that today because, believe it or not, the Bible talks about it. We're going to continue two more weeks in the series that we've been in the end of the summer here that we've just called a soak in the Psalms. 
Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Psalms are a, a part of the Old Testament that are ancient worship songs that God gave to his people, not only to allow them to sing, but through singing to teach them how to cope with life. And so as the lyrics to ancient worship songs, these psalms deal with so many facets of what it really means to walk with God in the real broken world in which we all live. And so we've just been benefited these last four Sundays, and we're going to do two more today and next week, just trying to soak in different psalms that focus on different aspects of following God, which helps us learn how to follow God in the experience that we're having in our day. Uh, just so you know where we're headed, starting Sunday, uh, September 26th, so two weeks from this morning, which is the same night as our 35th anniversary celebration that you heard Pastor Bruce mention earlier, uh, we're going to start a new series on our vision for discipling according to God's word, and we'll talk about that for several weeks, so that will be coming too. Now, if you're in Psalm 73, this honest, heartfelt and life-changing psalm, has the, the potential to be life-changing, begins by posing a bit of a problem. Uh, this is actually, I feel like, one of the, the more thoughtful psalms, not that any of them are thoughtless, I just mean there's a, lot of, there's a lot of thinking that goes into this musical and experiential psalm. Let me just read the first three verses, and you'll see what I mean. Psalm 73. A psalm of Asaph... Truly, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. These, this introduction sort of poses a problem, and it's one that we're all pretty familiar with. Uh, first of all, the, the introduction, a psalm of Asaph, that's the name of the guy who wrote it. Asaph was alive in the time of King David, about 1,000 B.C., give or take. He was part of the, the leadership team in, of, of the priests in Israel. He was a professional pastor, and one of, so to speak, uh, and one of his jobs, he was a Levitical priest, actually, uh, one of his jobs was that he helped organize some of the choirs for the worship services when God's people would gather as a congregation. So in very rough and loose terms, we might call him an associate pastor who focuses on worship ministry <laughs> in our terms. That's who Asaph was. He worked under King David and he helped organize the congregational worship life of the people of Israel. Now he begins by um, giving us a problem. Now the first verse, knowing who he is, might not be all that surprising, right? Truly, God is good to Israel and to all those who are pure in heart. Boy, is that the kind of thing you expect to hear when you come to church or what? God is super good. Isn't he great? Let's sing a song. If you're a little cynical, or perhaps just honest, that could sound a little kumbaya, right? God is just good all the time. And knowing that this is words written from somebody who is charged with helping lead God's people and worship a professional priest, like a pastor, maybe that doesn't surprise you to read that in the Bible. But that's not the end of his introduction. That's only the beginning. What he does next was that he poses a problem. Verse 2 and 3 might surprise us a little bit. He says, yeah, God is good, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps nearly slipped. He's like, God is good, but I've had a period of doubt and struggle. It's pretty honest, isn't it? 
I've had a period of doubt and struggle, and then he tells us why. Because I look around the world, and I see all these horrible people doing horrible things, and they not only seem to be getting away with it, they seem to be benefiting from it. Where's the justice in that? God, where are you? And like this had gone on long enough. He saw enough of this going on that he's confessing like, I'm really struggling with doubt. That's the introduction to this psalm. This is a psalm that is about walking with God in times of struggle and doubt because of the chaos in the world around us. And just before we get into how he lays this problem out and takes us on a journey, which he's going to do for the rest of the song, let me just point out a couple of important things right here at the beginning. First of all, there's an implication here, and that is that anxiety and doubting the goodness of God's plan is a normal part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Running into times or periods where we're full of anxiety and we're potentially even doubting whether God really is good is a normal part of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, hopefully we don't live there all the time, but to suggest that a true follower of Jesus should never be in that space is actually not accurate. It definitely doesn't come from the Bible. The Bible itself is giving us language to use. It's giving us tools to express a season of deep struggle and doubt. God says this is normal, which means we should not, as those who seek to follow God or want to know him better, we should not necessarily berate ourselves when pain or the injustice of the world overwhelm us, raise our anxiety, and make us doubt. Sometimes church-going Christians struggle with doubts, but it's like, I've got to stuff that. If I said that in church, I'm really doubting whether God is in this thing or not. Everybody would look at me like I was crazy. You're a bad Christian, right? Good Christians don't say that, which is funny because that's not what the Bible says, but sometimes that's what we think, and it can lead us to sort of stuff our doubts and not talk honestly with anybody about them. Now, while maybe we shouldn't stand in the middle of the atrium after church and broadcast them and walk around with a sandwich board, on the other hand, like, it, it is normal and natural for us to say, I've got to find some brothers and sisters in Christ with whom I can talk honestly about this. This is a normal part of the process. And actually, it's not just normal. It's actually, in the long run, a good thing. This introduction where he starts in verse 1, God is good. We come to realize that that's not just, that's not just um, Pollyanna. That's not just Kumbaya. That confidence in God is hard won for this guy, Asaph. It's hard won. He's gone through a period of doubting God, and he's come to a new place of resolution. And he wants to take us on that journey with him. This journey and the rest of the psalm largely unfolds along two kind of different paths. The rest of the psalm just sort of breaks into two. The first part, he looks around at the world, and he's going to describe the injustice that he sees and the impact that it has on him. And then the second part of the psalm, he's going to look up at God, and he's going to describe the righteousness that he sees and the impact that it has on him. That's kind of how the psalm rolls. Where am I looking? What do I see? And how does it impact me? And then once again, where am I looking? What do I see? And how does it impact me? Let's follow along with him. First of all, he looks around. Uh, he looks at the world 
around him. And what he sees when he looks at the world is he sees the wicked winning. That's Bible language of basically saying he's seeing people do really, really bad things. And not only are they getting away with it, they're profiting from it. They are prospering because of it. Verse 4, sorry, verse 3, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That was kind of an Old Testament way of saying, like, they're rich, they have all the food they want, they're the winners economically. They're not in trouble, verse 5, as others are, nor are they stricken like the rest of mankind. You know, verse 5 there just kind of summarizes everything from verses 4 to 12. They are not in trouble the way other people are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. You know, it should be that the good people get rewarded and the bad people get punished. And he's looking around the world and he's going, the bad people are winning and the good people are often suffering. But in particular, it's the bad people seeming to win at the game of life that is really troubling him. And so for the next seven or eight verses, he just unpacks in poetic, lyrical language all of the injustice that he sees people getting away with and prospering from. This is the classic problem of evil. It's actually, I call it classic because it's all over the place in human experience and it's been all throughout human history. It was here even 3,000 years ago in 1,000 B.C. in ancient Israel in the Middle East. It's here in modern America in the 21st century. It's everywhere. It's so common we have a name for it. We call it the problem of evil. And the Bible is dealing with it here. It acknowledges the pervasive feature of our broken world, this pervasive feature of our broken world, and it deals with it in many places, including today's psalm, Psalm 73. For some people, encounter, they, some people, they encounter the problem of evil more theoretically. If you're more of a thinker type or a philosopher, uh, you might pose it as a philosophical problem. If God exists and is perfectly good and is all-powerful, then evil should not exist, right? Because if he's there, we can talk about him. If he's good, that means he's against evil. And if he's all-powerful, that means he can defeat evil, so he would. The problem comes in that I look around and I see evil existing and persisting. And so I conclude that either God is not there, there is no God, just a figment of our imaginations, a wish dream, but not real. Or I conclude that he's not good. Maybe God is there and he could fix every problem in the world and he just doesn't do it. He doesn't care. He's not good. I can't trust him. Or... Lastly, maybe he is there and he is good. He's just not all-powerful. God is there. He wants to stop evil, but man, he just doesn't have him within it. It doesn't have it within him to get the job done, right? He just can't pull it off. He's just not all-powerful. He can't do it. Either way, the God of the Bible, who is there, all-powerful and good, cannot exist. Such goes the problem of evil. Perhaps... This line of thinking or something very similar to it has kept you from believing in God or trusting your life to Jesus. If that's where you're at, it's good to be honest with yourself and even with God. Because the existence of Psalm 73 shows that God gets the struggle. Like like he gets it. 
He demonstrates that by addressing it so clearly in the Bible. This passage of scripture and some others as well. It's almost as if God is saying, I am here. I am perfectly good and I am all powerful. And yet I preside over a world where wickedness runs rampant and evildoers are often rewarded. And I understand that's hard to reconcile. So I'm going to give you some biblical language that reflects that tension and gives you some guidance on how to live in that kind of a world. For others, we encounter the problem of evil in a less theoretical way and just a much more practical and experiential way. Maybe we don't dabble much in philosophy. But who hasn't at some point said something like while watching the news, God, don't you care about all of those Afghan men and women who are now being abandoned to the brutal regime of the Taliban? The young girls sometimes forcibly taken from homes and given as wives, they call them, to men that they don't desire, the people who are being shot and killed in the streets if they don't say the right things. Or, God, how could you let my child suffer? My loved one die. My good friend who, I mean, nobody's perfect, but they're such good people and they love you and they're dealing with so much hardship. God, why? Let's face it. Why me? Why us? Why them? It's one of the most natural first responses that human beings have to hardship. Even more so when that hardship is deliberately propagated by somebody who's making a choice and they're getting away with it. The reason we ask that why me, why them, why us question is because deep down inside we know the world is not the way it's supposed to be. That's unjust. It's not right. The the why me cry isn't so much an intellectual search for a satisfactory answer. Oh, you've explained it. Now I feel perfectly good about that situation. That's not what we're asking. Rather, it's the human soul expressing its anguish and its offense at injustice and expressing it from deep within because we know it's not supposed to be this way. That was the experience of Asaph as he looked around and saw so many wicked people not only getting away with it, but prospering. The widespread and persistent existence of wrongdoing shook him to his core. That's what he looked around. Now, how did it impact him? What was the result of being so dialed into the nightly news, so to speak, so dialed into the affairs of this world that he was just constantly awash in the injustice? Well, he tells us in verses 13 to 15, it absolutely shook him to his core. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Notice a couple things. Verse 13, when he says in vain, vain just means empty. Like there's, there's nothing to it. It's worthless. And so he's saying in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, like, God, I'm a, I'm, an, I'm a Levitical priest in Old Testament times. I'm trying to follow you, and I'm looking at all of my efforts to follow you now, and I'm going, did that even matter? In fact, I'm kind of suspecting it doesn't. And that's rocking my world. 
I'm trying to do the right thing, and I'm not sure the right thing counts. And I don't know what to do with that. And he realizes this doubt is running so deep that that he actually recognizes his position as a worship leader of God's people. He feels he'd be doing them a huge disservice if he spouted these things openly. Verse 15, if I had talked this way to people when I was in the middle of my doubt, if I had walked around with that sandwich board saying I doubt God, I would have led a whole lot of other people astray. Like, I can't talk about this kind of stuff in my public position. He realizes that's how shocking the situation that I'm dealing with in my own heart really is. Now, just a quick note of clarification. As we said at the beginning, he actually does talk about it later when he writes this psalm. This is a worship song for God's people to sing. The Bible's not encouraging us, once again, to stuff periods of doubt. He's just simply expressing the shock and how much his, his world has been rocked to its core. He's like, I can't just go talk about this stuff with people sort of unfiltered because it's going to ruin their faith too. This is a guy who's rocked to his core. Can you relate? God, I raised my kids as best I knew how for you. And they've totally rejected you and in some cases grown up and just kind of made a mess of their lives. And I believed so hard that if I raised a child in the way he should go when he's old, he would not depart from it. And I tried to do that and boy, did they ever depart. What do I do with that? God, I've tried my, my best to be the ideal Christian spouse that I could be, to be for my wife the husband that she needs, to be for my husband the wife that he needs, and yet despite all of my efforts to honor God and serve my spouse, my marriage is crumbling. These kinds of experiences are painful enough by themselves, but sometimes there can be another layer to the pain, and that is an anxiety that comes from the sense that the foundation upon which you built your life is actually crumbling under your feet. It kind of shines a new light back on verse 2 again as he started. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. He's like, as I'm walking through life trying to follow God, I just about biffed it and bit the dust. The whole road beneath my feet was like caving in around me. Everything I thought was solid footholds, I'm not so sure I think it's solid anymore. When he saw the world around him, it rocked him to his core. Doubt and anxiety took over. So what's the resolution? How does, how does he get through this, this period? How does he respond to it? There's a huge turn in this psalm in the next two verses, 16 and 17. Having laid out the problem and been honest about the impact on him, he says, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, <laughs> there's your pivot word right there, until, what, I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. That is the final outcome for all these wicked, evil people who are prospering right now. 
The resolution comes because it's a wearisome thing to try to understand. Again, Scripture acknowledges the difficulty of the problem of evil, whether it's more theoretical for us or very personal for us or, or a mix of both. Like, this is difficult, and to continue to wrestle in that and just look at the world around me, it's like there is no way to gain life and, 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 and resolution to that. It's wearisome, it's burdensome. He's like, I can't figure this out until something changed and it wasn't out there in the world, it was right here. It's where my eyes were focusing. Am I still looking at the world around me? Until I went to the sanctuary and started looking at God, my perspective shifted. I still saw all the problems, I still had the burdens, but I saw them now in a new light. Let's follow him along here. He moves from looking around him to looking up. Just as before he saw the problems of the world, now he sees God, the righteous judge. And just as before he described the impact, the doubt, he's going to describe the impact on his life of confidence and peace. When he looks up, he sees God who will perfectly judge everyone at the end. Let me continue reading from verses 18 down to 22. Truly, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Wow. This is a change of perspective, is it not? Notice just two things about these few verses that really sort of describe his shift in perspective. First of all, notice where he goes to get his eyes up. Verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Once again, Asaph is a guy, he's alive around the time of King David. That's when the nation of Israel was getting real excited about building God a permanent temple. David wanted to do it himself. God said, no, your son is going to do it, but you get to get ready. So he gathered all the building materials and laid out all the plans, and the nation was excited to finally build a big glorious temple for God. They had this temporary tabernacle, this tent, portable tent of a dwelling place for God. Now they were going to have a permanent temple. This is the time in which this guy is living and writing this psalm. He's got an eagerness to go to the temple of God, which back then is where God's people would come together to hear God's word declared and explained by the priests. They would come together to pray together. They would come together throughout various festivals throughout the year and sing songs that were shaped by God's word together as a way not only to celebrate, but also to educate themselves and define who they were in following him as a people. In short, the temple was a place where they came together to lock arms, get their focus off of the mundane realities of following God in this world, and get focused on God who is sovereign over all of that mundane reality. Today, local churches do the same thing for us. That's what a local church is all about. That's why it's so critically important to your spiritual journey, if you want to follow Jesus and get to know God better, that you find and commit to and participate in a Bible-based local church like this one, and by the grace of God, many others here in our community. Local churches are 
are places where people come together in community that are intentional about helping one another focus on and pursue God. The New Testament word for that, we use it a lot around harvest, is discipling, making disciples. What does the Bible mean by that? In simple terms, it's when we help one another get closer to God, grow further with God. That's what the church community is all about. Which is important to say, I think, in this day and age where you can self-educate on so many things. Can you not? The Internet's, you know, an amazing thing. Uh, One of the things I throw around my house, and it kind of annoys my family sometimes, and then every now and then somebody says it to me and it annoys me, so I keep saying it to them, is um, Google is your friend. Hey, Dad, what is this? When is that going to happen? I don't know. Google's your friend. Look it up. You could have the answer in 10 seconds, right? How do you do this? Google is your friend. I mean, Google may not really be your friend, but you get what I'm saying, right? You could find out anything on the Internet, can you not? I took last week off. Uh, We're doing, like, ripping up, putting in a new floor, kind of redoing some trim in one of the rooms in our house. I have spent at least a few hours in aggregate on YouTube this past week watching videos of all kinds of Finnish carpenters who are making like their little DIY videos of I've got this very specific problem that none of the general stuff addresses. Surely I'm finally going to stump YouTube. I type it in there. Seven videos pop up for exactly that little problem, right? And I'm watching them and all these different guys are talking about that what you do and this is what happens and this is why and this is how you fix it. Ooh, I'm learning. I'm like, this is cool. I'm self-educating, right? I'll never be a Finnish carpenter. Don't look too closely at the trim in my house if you ever come over. But the floor is in, we're getting it done, and I'm self-educating. It's wonderful. This is the YouTube world, right? It's the internet generation. It's hugely helpful to have that kind of a resource available to us. But it can be easy to assume that you can self-educate on everything in life, which is actually not completely true, is it? Ever tried to self-diagnose a medical problem? Go read the internet you'll be convinced that this sniffle means you are two seconds away from death, right? (laughs) Talk to your doctor and ask them about it, right? Get somebody to help mediate that information for you. It can also be easy these days to believe that you can figure out God through self-educating. Grabbing info from the web and whatever other sources that you choose to trust. I've got to tell you, the ability to have a live stream like the one some of you are watching us on right now, what a blessing during this past year and a half of pandemic. Uh, we've embraced that. We're running with it. It has met such a need. There's a lot of good to it. There's also a potential downside to it, right? All these churches all over the place, live streaming everything. Church can suddenly become like the Netflix of spirituality, right? Why go to church at all? Even if I could, it's easier to stay home. I found a church, gosh, it doesn't even have to be a local church anymore, right? I found a sweet church in Atlanta, Georgia. They've got this amazing stream. I'm going to watch that one this morning. I just got my menu of live streams I can watch. It can be easy to think, like, I don't really need church. My church is when I'm out in nature or I'm with my friends and I'm thinking vaguely spiritual thoughts of gratitude toward God. That's a meaningful experience for me, so that's my church. Ever heard anybody talk that way? It's pretty common. Friends, with respect, I think God disagrees. It's a big statement, but I think that's what I'm reading in the Bible. I need, in the Old Testament language, the sanctuary. In the New Testament language, I need my church. Because this kind of sort of hyper-individualized 
modern American spirituality will simply not sustain you when evildoing presses in hard and the harsh realities of a broken world can't be ignored anymore. Churches always have problems. Yes, I get that. I get that. They have problems and shortcomings because we're in them. It happens. But you need to commit to and participate in a local church like this one. This is where we come to get one another's eyes up on God and see the realities of life in light of who he is. And if you are newer to our church family, maybe you're brand new, this is your first Sunday with us, or maybe you've been around for a couple of months but you still haven't connected, I really want to invite you to the Harvest Connection event that Bruce mentioned earlier. Uh, Sunday, September 26, two weeks from today at 4.30 in the afternoon here at the church. Don't worry about where the room is. We will guide you there. There's people. We're nice. We'll find, we'll get you in the right place. And it's a great place to just get to know us. Let us get to know you and find out how to become a part of this church family. So first of all, where he goes to change his perspective, he goes to the gathered assembly of God's people. But second, notice that when he gets his eyes up on God, he sees that all evildoers will be fully and totally punished in the end. When the church community helps him see God, what does he see? He sees a God who actually is in control after all and who actually will judge all evildoers. Note the artful way that verse 20 describes the situation. I love this. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It's back to that nightmare. Have you ever had a nightmare so vivid that your body physically reacted? You wake up in the middle of the night and like your heart rate is up. Maybe you're sweating a little bit. Your, your breathing is up because you know some crazy person was just about to stab you in the back with a knife or some monster was about to eat you or whatever your nightmare is and you wake up and there's that shocking moment of like, where am I? And then the flood of relief that, oh, thank God, it was just a dream. Ever been there? But you could tell like your body is physically reacting. For a moment, you were living as if it was real, but you wake up and you realize it's not real. That I experienced it for a while, but that's not the real world I'm waking up to. The Bible says that's what this world is like. All the evil, it's just like a nightmare. Yeah, we're experiencing it, but that is not the end. That is not the end. We, thank God, are going to wake up to a day where God finally brings all evil to account and wipes it all out. And we're going to live in that for eternity if we placed our faith in Christ. It's like waking up from a dream. All those bad, evil people that I'm so overwhelmed with right now, I'm just going to wake up and realize, like, oh, that was just a bad dream. Thank God that's over. That's what I have to look forward to. He gets his perspective adjusted. But this raises a big question. Why the delay? Why the delay? Why judge evil one day? Why not judge it all right now? Why doesn't God just take care of it all right now? This is what creates the problem in the problem of evil that we're talking about, right? Why only punish sin later? Why does the good and all-powerful God not undo injustice right now? There is not one simple answer to that question. But the Bible does give us multiple things to consider, one of which is right here in this psalm and several other passages. It's because in the language of the New Testament, in God's kindness, he wants some of us to survive that experience. You see, perfect justice is just that. Perfect. Absolute. Total. 
For God to rid the world of all evil and injustice, which he says he will indeed do at some point, every sin will have to be punished and every sinner will have to be dealt with in the way that they deserve. And the Bible makes it very clear what every sinner deserves. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That means every one of us. That means me. That means you. Which means that every one of us who are demanding justice may not really be demanding full justice. While some people definitely sin worse than others, no one is free from sin or guilt before God. And when the perfectly just God lowers the boom on sin, he will lower the boom on all sin once and for all. Not just the sin that is particularly offensive and bothersome to you, but all of it even the sin in you. In other words, none of us would survive God's perfect justice. Because you see, there's one more piece to this puzzle. At least one more piece. While God is certainly there, the Bible says, he is all-powerful and he is definitely good, he is not less than that, but he is also more than that. He is also completely merciful and totally loving all at the same time. And we need to take all of this into account. In Romans chapter 2, the Bible describes God's delaying of final judgment as a kindness. He actually says it's, it's a kindness. Why? Because the Bible says that kindness of God in delaying, punishing all evildoers, is meant to lead you to repentance. It doesn't often lead people to repentance, but that's what God intends it to do. He says, I'm holding off on final judgment so that some of you would recognize I am not only just, but I'm also merciful, and you would come and repent of your sins and find life in me. He's holding off dealing with sin and finality so that some sinners can escape that judgment and experience life forever. How ironic that the delay in judgment that God intends to lead people to repentance is often the very thing that keeps some people from repentance. God will judge in the end. And what's the impact on Asaph when he looks up and he finally sees this? He describes it in verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. All my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you see the journey this guy has been on that he's taken us through in this song? Here's the impact on him. Comfort now, knowing that God is with him, plus the promise of future hope, you will take me into your eternally righteous dwelling, I'll live with you forever in heaven, equals deep seated and unshakable peace as his focus is firmly on God. So the conclusion of the psalm, verses 27 and 28, Behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. What do we take away from this? Since The wicked will lose in the end. Take refuge in God. What does that mean? A refuge is just a shelter, right? There's a storm, I find a cave, I find a house, I find something to shelter under. How do you take shelter from the chaos of this world in God? 
Well, first it's to recognize that God became man in Christ Jesus, lived this broken world and suffered many of its injustices just as we do. God gets it experientially. He then died in your place to take your punishment for you, thus clearing your record and paving the way for you to wake up from the nightmare one day to a world of righteousness and peace. This kind of long-term eternal hope that Asaph had can only be had when you commit your life to Jesus Christ. That's the kindness of God to create the space for us to bank on him. Making God our refuge means first and foremost repenting of our self-reliant sin, asking God for undeserved forgiveness, and trusting Jesus' death in our place as the payment for our wrong. We'd be delighted to talk with you after the service today about how to do that if you've never committed your life to Christ. But that's not only a one-time decision. On an ongoing basis, we continue to take refuge in God as this man did. When our eyes get focused on the world, we continually refocus on him, following the pattern of the psalm. Taking refuge in God means recognizing that everything in this here and now media-driven world screams, look at me, now! Look at the problems. Look at the disease. Look at the climate change. Look at the pandemic. Look at the microchip shortage that's going to prevent you from buying a new car next year. The world is bad. It's screaming at us. Growing further in our relationship with Jesus meaning, means learning to regularly shift our focus onto him and helping others do the same. Wrap up with just a couple of questions to maybe think about and reflect on. I would encourage you to. That'd be great to take these questions and a friend or a couple family members out to lunch today, maybe talk about them over lunch. If your community life group is meeting, these would be great questions to discuss in your community life group. What's causing you the greatest distress right now and how do you handle it? It's kind of where we started our service this morning, right? What's your default? Where do your eyes go? Uh, secondly, how could you make God your refuge? How could you right now make God your refuge in the midst of this particular situation? Maybe you don't know the answer to that question. That's where it's great to talk with others. Let me, let me think out loud here. Help turn my eyes toward God. What, what role could, could the Bible play in that? What role could God's people play in that? What role could, depending on God's spirit, play in that? What would it look like for you right now to take refuge in God? And lastly, what tends to keep you from making God your refuge? Perhaps you're with us this morning and you've, you've heard many times before that Jesus died for your sins and you just don't want to trust your life to Christ. What keeps you? What's, what's the hang-up? That's good to talk about and process together. Uh, maybe you are a Christian, but you're not walking with God's Spirit and you're being overwhelmed by the reality of the world. What keeps you from being more in God's Word, being better connected to God's people? How can we bring those things to God and let Him deal with them and deal with us? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up here and close out our service because we just read the lyrics to a worship song and so we're going to close our service singing as a congregation a couple of worship songs that direct our hearts toward God in gratitude for the fact that he is there. The world is chaotic, but there's a pathway of hope. Jesus, I pray that we would see that pathway clearly and that for the heart of every man and woman in this room, you would show us yourself that you would get our eyes up and help us get one another's eyes up, that we might live as a people of hope in the midst of a world of chaos. Not a Pollyanna hope, a real hope. God, that you are going to deal with all evil. 
We thank you for that. Our hearts cry, come, Lord Jesus. But we also recognize your kindness and delaying. And I pray that you would inflame our hearts with the same passion you have to see other people come to faith in Christ as well. Use us, God. Receive our worship now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.